Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, and thank you for joining us for Global IQ. I'm Jim Falk. Let me begin by thanking our sponsors, Alcatel Lucent, SB International, Texas Capital Bank, and Inhaba Global, LLC, and a special greetings to World Affairs Council members from across the country. It's a pleasure to welcome two very good friends to our timely program on, on Mexico's upcoming transition of power, Dr. Juan Hernandez and Dr. Andrew Seeley. Uh, we're waiting for Dr. Seeley to join us, so let me go ahead and introduce first Dr. Hernandez. Juan is co-founder of the Hispanic Leadership Alliance, the Hispanic Republicans of Texas, and founder of the U.S.-Mexico Center at the University of Texas. He's a regular contributor of CNN and Fox News as a political commentator. In fact, he'll be on CNN just a little bit later this morning. Juan began his career in politics as an advisor to the Vicente Fox campaign, and since then he has advised many international corporations and presidential hopefuls, including President Felipe Calderon, John McCain, and Josefina Vaquez Mota. Now, as always, let me remind and encourage our listeners to submit questions or comments for our panelists via the chat feature on your dashboard, and we'll be sure to include just as many as we can during the next hour. And you also have the chance to win prizes courtesy of our sponsors by being the first to correctly answer one of our challenge questions. And today we're going to be giving away copies of New American Pioneers, Why We Are Afraid of Mexican Immigrants. This book was written by Juan Hernandez. And then a new book, The Fire Next Door, Mexico's Drug Violence and the Danger to America. This book is written by Ted Carpenter, who will be in Dallas, as well as a number of other World Affairs Councils over the course of the next few months. Welcome, Juan. So glad you're with us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is exciting. Come. And let me be sure that Andrew is not joined us yet. All righty. Well, we'll keep tracking him down. Well, Juan, um... Yeah, Enrique Pena Nieto was elected on July 1st, and I think it's so interesting that Mexico has such a long transition period, about really five months, he'll, he'll take the office on December 1st in a few weeks, returning the pre to power after a hiatus of, of 12 years, a, a, a hiatus that, that you helped make possible, in fact, when you worked so closely with President Fox, Pena uh, Nieto uh, comes to the presidency, uh, without a legislative or popular majority, in fact, getting only 38% of the vote compared to 32% for Obrador. And the candidate of the PAN, um, Calderon's party, came in third. Um, tell us, in your view, after holding power since 2000, uh, why did the PAN, the National Action Party, lose? Well, Mexico is a democracy and a democracy in which the population votes uh, in great numbers, by the way, more than in the United States. A great percentage of the population is young, and they were very active this time in, in uh, voting many for the PRD, which is the party of the left, others for the PAN, including many students, by the way, uh, and we may talk about the student movement at some point, uh, and then many young people voted for Enrique Peña Nieto, who is young. Uh, the PAN, I believe, made many mistakes, but one mistake is believing that um, everyone remembers the dark past of the PRI, that after you've been in power for 12 years, and in Mexico, for those who don't know, in Mexico you have one term for six years, that's how long the presidency is, and no re-election. So the PAN with Vicente Fox won in 2000 and then won in 2006. So these young people that were coming to vote, they uh, don't remember the 71 years before 2000 of the PRI uh, ruling. They remember the 12 years of the PAN. And we can discuss whether the PAN did a great job or not, uh, but most of us want, uh, we want to do better and to they, these young people especially saw that in these 12 years there were great disappointments, and so they were willing to vote for a different party. In 
very low numbers, as you said, Jim, only 38%, but in Mexico that was good enough in a three-party um, contest for the PRI to win. And I think I've read that uh, 6% equals about 3 million votes, so it was still uh, relatively significant. Um, let me ask you one question that, that I don't know the answer. Many questions that I don't know the answer to, but this one, um, you say, of course, that presidents cannot run for a second term, and in fact, so many of Mexico's prior presidents have uh, left, uh, often with uh, uh, trunks full of, full of cash. Um, but could a president uh, run um, later after, after after someone else had had, had a term of office? Uh, for instance, could President Fox run again in, in six years, or could Calderon run again in six years, or are they ruled out now for forever? Most uh, legal experts would say that you cannot run a, a second time. That has been contested, uh, not in, in the courts yet, but there have been a few times in which uh, some of the presidents who said, well, I'd like to contest that. I don't believe that that's what the law says. It may be a little bit like what has happened in the state of Texas, and that's wondering if, if, if the governor of Texas is going to be running again. And so, uh, but as it stands now, no one has returned to run again, and uh, we don't expect that. We have a president Fox who is 70 years old uh, this year, and uh, is not thinking about running. He's still quite popular in Mexico. No, I think that we will be having uh, new people, uh, and Mexico, I repeat, is a very young nation. It's surprising how young many of the cabinet members are in their 30s and their 40s, and Mexico looks to the young people for leadership. And yet you say that, but then Andres Lopez Obrador ran again, and I would have thought and actually, I was somewhat surprised that he was not more discredited after disputing the matter that he did the 2006 presidential elections. Uh, why didn't his party have a, a younger candidate? And I was surprised how well Lopez Obrador did also, but I will tell you that, and those of us who worked on campaigns, we know that hard work many times. <laughs> Um, it does help the campaign, not always, but many, many, many times it does, and Lopez Obrador is a worker. Uh, he, I don't share many of his points of view. Uh, he is said to be very close to the, the, the Chavez and uh, just extreme left. Nevertheless, uh, he goes around the nation. He works at seven, seven days a week. He meets with the groups. He was able to um, move to the center quite a bit also this time and was able to get a lot of uh, not just young people supporting him, but also many uh, businesses. So he he knows how to perform, let us say, as a good candidate. And you're right, he got 32% of the vote, which means he only lost by 6 7%. Yeah. Now, Josefina um, Mota um, was, was, was criticized quite a bit by, in the campaign. Um, was, was she really the best candidate, in your view, that the, the prime could have offered? And tell us a little bit about how, uh, how the, the system works, that, that someone becomes the, the candidate or the party, party leader. Uh, is, is there a central primary system like we have here, or, or how is it, or is it done in smoke-filled corridors? It's a, a combination, let us say. But, uh, it is similar to the United States. There are primaries. You will find that the parties decide uh, every six years how they would like to uh, uh, have their uh, democratic primary. I know that at one point the PRI decided to open it up to everyone to vote in the primary, including those who were not PRI members. Uh, the PRD it did something similar. The PAN only had PANistas votes, though there was talk about also opening it up to the general population. So it's an interesting combination there. Um, there were several very good candidates for the PAN, the PAN uh, uh, in the PAN primary. Josefina uh, did a very, very good job. We find that around the world, women are seeking the highest uh, 
leadership position of corporations and are and are achieving that that place. In Latin America, we've had, as you know, several women who have been presidents, and polls that, that I participated in Mexico told us that though people believed that the majority of the nation was not, and I quote, ready for a woman to rule, close quotes, individually they said, but I will vote for a woman. So the majority of the nation was ready for a woman, but probably the rest of their, uh, of their citizenry was not ready. So they could have voted for her. They did vote for her in the primary. She did win um, and won, I would say, most of the debates that, that the primary had on, on television and radio. Uh, it, I think it was really for other reasons that she lost uh, the presidency. Mm-hmm. Now, the campaign, a lot like our campaign in the United States, uh, certainly, both can, or all, all candidates have their, their fair share of, of gaps. Um, and Nieto's campaign was characterized, I often saw, by his movie star, Good Looks. Um, and uh, he did that a, a little bit like President George H.W. Bush couldn't remember the, the price of, of tortillas and said, um, I am not the woman of the house. Uh, go ahead and yeah. tell us a little bit more about, about his background. And, um, and and what you expected to see? Well, it was a great honor to participate in in, in um, this campaign because it was so interesting. Uh, having a, a woman run in Mexico for the first time was very very interesting, and, and so of course you had a, a dynamic of all the campaigns being very different from from the past. Not just having three, four, five men up there uh, debating, you had a woman who, by the way, uh, emphasized that she was, and this is a key word, different. Different in every respect. Different because she was a woman, but different uh, because she believed that in, in many of the issues that, uh, that things could be better in Mexico if a different approach was presented. And by the way, the Mexican people loved that vocabulary, they loved the slogan, they loved the idea of things being done different in Mexico. So it was a great slogan, a great message to the Mexican people, and that could be given by someone different. And then you had uh, the PRI coming back and showing a, a great strength. The PRI had never really gone away. The PRI continued having governorships, mayorships, um, a, a, a great number in Congress, uh, many uh, in the business community supporting the, the PRI. So the PRI had continued being strong. Uh, and the PRD, is, and as you know, uh, three-way, uh, a three-way contest in politics is usually not, not good. Two <laughs> seems to work better in democracy. You know, here we have 30-30-30, no one's happy. Um, with the winner, uh, the winner does not have a majority to, to be able to govern well. Uh, countries like Guatemala, they have a second round, and uh, you have three or four or five, but then there are only two left over for the second round, and so you are able to win with 51%. So this was a very different type of, of contest, and um, marked with many uh, 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 comical moments. Uh, one was Peña Nieto at a conference presenting his, the book that he had written um, about Mexico and at a press conference, about 50 people at the media, which is all, of course, on YouTube these days. You can't, you can't find it. Uh, he's asking what books do you read? And he did not name a one. And he went around and around and around in circles and circles and circles and everybody started laughing. He started laughing himself. And finally came up with the Bible. Uh, <laughs> but uh, said he had not his whole book. <laughs> Andrew, I, I think Andrew may have joined us. Is that correct? Andrew, are you with us, Ken? No, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, Warren. Go ahead. No, no, no problem. Uh, but then there were uh, comical moments of Josefina going to uh, the launching of her campaign in which there were going to be, I don't know, somewhere around maybe 50,000 people or something like that. The place was packed. 
but it was hotter at, at the stadium than people uh, had expected. They ran out of water. Uh, usually at these at these uh, campaign launches, you purposefully start an hour, an hour and a half, even two hours late, uh, and you have music and and uh, everyone's in expectation for the candidate to arrive. Uh, I mean, that's the way they're normally done. I think to me at least. Well, this time people started leaving because it was so hot. They were thirsty, <laughs> and the buses started taking the people out. By the time Josefina started speaking, she was speaking to a crowd that was already departing. Um, of course, it was used by the other candidates uh, in a very, very humorous way. So there were there were many moments that were that were funny. Um, but that's also uh, debilitated uh, the parties and the candidates. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you touched on this just a minute ago, and I'd like you to elaborate about this movement of, of the youth. Uh, I believe it's called Yosoi 132. Um, and, and, and that, I guess, originated at a university and, and really was uh, a retrospective concern about the role of the free and, 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 and the corruption that. that Mexico really had to live with for, for seven decades. And as you uh, respond to that, let me again remind our listeners that we'll have a challenge question very shortly. We're still waiting for Andrew Seeley to join us. Uh, but, Juan, we sure are glad you're here. And to remind you to uh, uh, feel free to make comments or ask questions to the chat feature uh, on your desktop. So, so Juan, tell us about your soy 132. Yes. Um the candidate of the PRI visited the University Iberoamericana, a Jesuit university, a very one of the maybe the top three universities of the nation of Mexico, uh, Vicente Paz, a former president of Mexico, uh, graduated from the Iberoamericana. Uh, my daughter, by the way, went to the Iberoamericana, so I know that university very well. It's a wonderful university. Um, uh, very up-to-date in, in, in many respects, very good in political science, um, and as I say, but with a, just a little bit of a Jesuit in orientation, which they would define, I believe, as not just working for yourself, not just uh, being a profession for yourself, but to serve others. And I give all of this emphasis because when Peña Nieto comes to this university, uh, the students um, do him. Uh, because they don't believe that he is someone who will serve, uh, the Jesuits will serve the nation, but will serve himself, serve his party, as they believed um, that the party did for 71 years. He gets a little bit irate. Uh, he almost runs out of the university, and once again, this is all on YouTube, and, and those who feel on YouTube made it look like he was escaping going into the restroom and getting out of the restroom and trying to avoid uh, the students. Uh, the students start growing in numbers as he's leaving. Uh, they're running after him. They're screaming to him all kinds of vocabulary. Um, and um, the social media takes over with regard to this. And Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, uh, they start uh, talking about Peña Nieto running away from the message, running away from the people, running away from questioning, running away. And uh, a group is formed called uh, 132, which was supposedly the amount of students that were trying to get him to answer. There were many more students at the university, but somehow these 132 were young leaders who demanded and signed a petition and asking him to answer specific questions of what he would do if he became president. Uh, this group uh, grew throughout the nation of Mexico, mostly of students, mostly young people. They started marching, um, and they ended up not siding so much with the PAN on the right. The, I would say most of the students that go to the Iberoamericana are of the right and, and PAN. But at least the way it was presented there at the end, right before the election, was that many of the students were really of the left of the PRD. I won't say socialist, but a little bit of a, of a extreme left. That movement now continues. 
And I think it's a very healthy movement of the young people questioning, not just now the new president, Peña Nieto, uh, who will take office, of course, the 1st of December, um, with the elected president, but also questioning other leaders, questioning members of Congress, questioning, uh, in general, the political leadership of Mexico. Um, we just got a question from one of our listeners, and they say, what are the similarities, differences in the youth vote fueling uh, participation in Mexico um, and, and, and Obama in 2008? And does this say something about youth in, in North America? Are, are we really seeing the, the, uh, the, the results of, um, uh, of, of, of social media here and, and, and the that? Did the youth vote uh, help propel Peña uh, Nieto over the finish line? Uh, I think that, uh, on the one hand, yes, I think it's a, a world uh, movement of young people, especially with the use of, of social media. And there is a great empowerment now that uh, it's a great democratizing, if you will, of our entire world through social media. And I think that's a good thing. If you have a good message, um, you have an audience. And, of course, there'll be all kinds of filters and, and uh, as maybe there should be. But there is an audience out there if you have an important message. And um, in the United States, uh, we'll find out next week if the young people of this nation are still as enthusiastic as they were four years ago with Obama. Uh, most polls say that that the young people are not as enthusiastic for Obama and that change did not come and that the young people who will be voting for the first time see the administration of Obama as uh, just more of the same, if you will, of a political talk. Mm -hmm. In Mexico, um, the, I would say that it, uh, it goes up in this group, the movement of 132, as they call themselves, uh, they would probably say that they were successful and not successful because they were specifically against Peñanieto, not so much in favor of López Obrador or Josefina. They were specifically trying to stop the PRI to return. The PRI was in power for 71 years. That's longer than communism in the Soviet Union. Um, so how much of a democracy can you have if the same party wins every six years uh, over and over and over and over and over? Uh, so these young people were willing to stop the PRI from returning. So they would say that on the one hand they failed, they were not able to stop him. On the other hand, they have created a power, a political power of young people that question authority, especially question political authority. And in that sense, they've been extremely successful. Well, I want to be sure that we have plenty of time to talk about what we expect to see in a Peña Nieto uh, administration. But before we move there, we have a, a question from one of our listeners, uh, and he asks, what has the relationship, what is or what has been the relationship between uh, Manuel López Obrador and Hugo Chávez of Venezuela? Uh, we don't know. There are all kinds of uh, rumors that uh, that López Obrador received funds from Hugo Chavez. Um, we don't know if that's true or not. Some claim that they have proved. Uh, we don't know. His vocabulary, um, his, uh, the issues that he tends to support seem to be aligned with Hugo Chavez and others of extreme left. In his message is one of uh, sort of an anti-Yankee uh, message anti the United States, um, very extremely populist. Lopez Obrador tends to say whatever will get him votes. I think that most would, would agree with that statement. Most in Mexico would agree. Um, it's not so much that he has a, a, a strong ideology except one of supporting the poor. When he was mayor of the city of Mexico City, as you know, uh, at one time the largest city in the world, I'm not sure where it is now, but uh, of 16 million people, 22 million if you count the whole metroplex, he 
was one to get many things done, and that's been in the policy sense for, for, for the poor of Mexico, but it was full of corruption, Mexico City. And in many cases, these good deeds, I will, uh, for example, the building of a, of a road, um, within Mexico City, a highway, was built and homes were torn down, uh, businesses, without getting much of a permission from these people. It's because it was helped the poor uh, to be able to communicate one part of the system never, and so very little rule law with regard to taking over properties, and the federal government, then at that time, he sent the boss at criticizing Lucas Obrador for not following rule of law, as he did these good deeds. A hospital was built in an area where there was no communication uh, and caused all kinds of problems to to that whole section of the city, but it was a great symbol for Lopez Obrador that he was trying to meet the health needs of Mexico City. So whether he is really linked to some of these other uh, socialists or leftist leaders, uh, I, I'm not sure. They definitely publicly supported Lopez Obrador, and those who can or the center always uh, uh, did not support Lopez Obrador. Well, good. And Urban uh, Loza, thank you so much for that question. And uh, um, let's go ahead and do our, our, our first challenge question. Ron, this is always a fun part of our Global IQ program. And, and the question is going to be, before retiring to support her husband's presidential campaign, Benito's wife worked as, and Juan, don't you answer the question. Our listeners will have a chance to win a copy of Ted Carpenter's uh, new book, The Far Next Door, Mexico's Drug Violence in the Danger to America, and we'll announce the uh, winner in, in, in just a minute. Well, let's sort of take a look now at what, what the future might bring. Uh, President Calderon staked much of his reputation on, on, on fighting crime, uh, yet the debt toll uh, continues to rise. I've seen estimates as high as over 50,000, uh, 55,000 people, in fact, have been killed. Uh, will the new president of Mexico continue the strategy, or will, as some have speculated, that he might fall back on the three parties' historical tendency of uh, uh, cooperation uh, with, with cartel leaders. Mexico is tired of the killings, um, though they, most polls say that the Mexican people support the current uh, president, who will be leaving office uh, December 1st, in, that it is fight against the, the narcos, and I think that it's important to use the vocabulary of the narcos and the, the business of, of drug trafficking. Uh, most Mexicans favor what the president has done. Nevertheless, they really like, for example, Josefina's message that I will continue fighting the drug lords but in a different manner. And that word different people like so much. They said, yes, we want, to, we want the new president, whoever he or she may be, to continue attacking the drug lords, but do it a different way. And different can mean many things, but of course means less deaths of, of uh, innocent citizens in Mexico. Now, you will find that most of the deaths have to do with the drug lords. It's, uh, the fighting is between drug lords or the army or the police against the drug lords. And so uh, very few people that are driving by are put there or have died because of this. So it's terrible, of course, the killings. It, but it's mostly a fear now within the nation that I could be going to the front store or to the movie and there could be a, a, some shooting going on and I might get killed. And there's very few of these, if you really count them around the nation, Mexico is a large nation. Still, it has caused, of course, great, great fear uh, in Mexico and in abroad. Uh, we see Let me ask you this. Uh, Stephen Dudney, who directs Inside Crime, which is a consultancy group, uh, says that violence will become worse following Peña Nieto's inauguration. And I quote, the space that the cartels are fighting for is getting smaller. Uh, is, is this an assumption that, that you share? I mean, will we continue to see... Uh, extreme violence, but maybe in a smaller area? Um, I'm not an expert in this, but I believe that uh, that when you have a new president, it's kind of like a, uh, the new year. We're all set up for 
getting better. We all have these desires to do exercises, and I'm sorry for, for, for using this type of, a, of, of an example, but the nation of Mexico, and I would say the United States and other nations, are looking for new things in Mexico, and we expect for things to be better. And in that climate, things can get better. Let me just uh, use a little bit of Vicente Fox's perspective, and uh, uh, I tend to agree with him with some differences, but Vicente Fox believes that when you have an enemy, no matter how evil that enemy is, you must be willing to converse with him or <laughs> her. Uh, and, and Vicente Fox says that, that the Mexico has not been willing to sit down and talk to the enemy, the, the drug lords. Um, is that exactly what President Fox was when he was uh, in power? He did not at that time because I believe that he would agree that there was not such a, a presence. There did not seem to be the those uh, early warnings did not uh, did not appear that, that this is where we were headed. I think that that's how he would answer. So it's not that Benjamin will necessarily bargain with the enemy, the goggles, uh, the drug laws, but that he will say, look, right, I know that that's, that's, um, the drugs are not staying in the United States. You are selling to the nation of the United States, and I need to talk to the United States about also starting a drug on consumption uh, as I continue fighting you, drug lords in Mexico, but let's, let's um, agree that we're going to stop all this killing as we're solving these problems. And if you committed crimes, yes, I am going to follow you. I'm going to look for you. And if you kill someone, we will find you and you will uh, go to jail. Nevertheless, let's bring down the level of of, uh, of the killings. And uh, I think that that could only be good for, for everyone. And I think that that's what a Vicente Fox would expect a Peña to do. Now, let me ask you this, because I read that Inmieto named a Colombian, General Oscar Naranjo, uh, to be in, and former head of Colombia's National Police as his security advisor. Is, is, that, is that still the case? And is this a sign that he's shifting responsibility that Calderon did, where he had the military so involved, uh, more now to the police? And my understanding has been that the police were really one of the most corrupt entities in Mexico. So how's that going to work? Well, um, Alvaro Uribe, former president of Colombia, and, and, and you and I, uh, Jim, had him here at the, at the presidential dinner in Fort Worth, at the Detective Boss presidential dinner a few months ago. And Alvaro Uribe had a, a sort of a, 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 a two strategies going on at the same time. On the one hand, he was very strong, very stern. He would put up with no nonsense with regard to the to the drug laws and sent many of them to jail and many died in that war. On the other hand, he was always willing to have a conversation with his enemy and always created incentives, for example, for the young people to, as he said, pick up a violin instead of a gun. Uh, if those who would bring in guns, he would provide them with funds for scholarships, etc., and, and would have types of amnesty for kids, especially if they had been somehow uh, participating in with the drug wars, not, not if they had killed anyone or, of course, committed crimes. But, but he was able to, to have it, let's say, this, on the one hand, these actions of, let's say, cleansing the nation, of bringing down the violence, on the other hand, not putting up with the, the drug wars. Mexico has been effective in attacking the drug wars, but has not been able to stop the, the, the violence that, the, that is going on with the, with the drug laws. In my mind, uh, by bringing in, forgive me, but someone from Colombia that worked under Alvaro Uribe, I believe that that's what Peña Nieto wants to, to achieve, something similar to what Alvaro Uribe did, which is a good thing, I believe. Yeah, by chance, you're Hello there, Dr. Seeley, the marvels of technology. Welcome. Yes. 
Well, we, we apologize for the late arrival, but uh, has some technical difficulties. Well, no problem. We'll, we'll to interrupt you. Drink his coffee for a minute, but we'll, we'll continue to engage both of you in the conversation. Um, Andrew, let me go, just go ahead and quickly introduce you. Uh, Andrew Sheer, as I said, is a, is a good friend of many World Affairs Councils. He's Vice President for Programs of the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and Director of the Center's Mexico Institute. He serves on the board of the Mexico-U.S. Fulbright Program and the editorial board of the journal Latin American Policy. Uh, he's an associate of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, co-director of the Regional Migration Study Group. This was a project at the uh, Woodrow Wilson Center, and he has served as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations Independent Task Force on Immigration. So perfect timing to have you, Andrew, because we'll, we'll move into immigration in just a second. Let me first, though... Um, I thank and congratulate Daniel Garcia, who knew that Pinyanito's uh, wife was formerly a actress on a, a soap opera actress, fact actress, and uh, you'll be receiving a copy of Ted Carpenter's book, The Fire Next Door, Mexico's Drug Violence and the Danger to America. Uh, we're talking, Andrew, is, I'm not sure if you heard all this, about the, the drug cartels, and um, we had a, a question that just came in a second ago. I'm going to try to pull it back up because I think it's a very keen one from uh, Urban. And he said, uh, there seems to be a correlation between the most violent states in terms of the drug war and its casualties in the states that, that lean towards the pre and the last election. Um, is, is that an accurate uh, assessment? And if so, Andrew, why is it? And we have up still on our screen a, a map of, of Mexico showing the drug violence that's taking place. Well, you know, it's interesting. In, in three of the states with the, the highest violence, the most recent violence, which is Tamaulipas, Nuevo León, and Veracruz, the three actually unexpectedly lost the election. Veracruz, I think they won in the final count, but by a whisker. Um, and the fund did very well. And, and the suspicion is actually it was a, it was a vote against the local governors. There was the governors have let things get out of control in those states. Um, but there is a, I mean, there is something of a, a correlation between states like free and violence. But it's not absolute. And, and we've seen states like Michoacan, which was governed by the PRD, uh, Morelos, which is governed by the bond, have also had extreme problems. Um, Guerrero is actually one of the most violent states right now, the first or second governed by the PRD, that they've also had a lot of, of uh, drug trafficking violence. I think the actual answer on that is they're just more states governed by the PRI. The PRI has the, the more than 50%. I think they have now 19 or 20 of the 32, 31 states in the capital in Mexico. So, you know, there's just more states for them to, uh, that they govern. There are also more state states governed by the PRI, as it turns out. So it, it's probably, uh, uh, there's no causation one way or the other there. Well, Mexico historically has been one of the favorite tourist sites for, for Americans, and Jocelyn Lancaster, who, who produces our Global IQ program, pulled up an interesting article this morning from the Los Angeles Times and uh, addressing in particular Mexico's tourism. This, this graph here, unfortunately, only goes to 2010, uh, but this article that, that she found in the LA Times said that in the first half of this year, Mexico reported a 77% increase in visitors from Russia, a 61% jump from Brazil, and a 38% bump from Venezuela. Um, the number of U.S. visitors has, has dropped by 1%. Um, and, and, and Mexico is indeed changing its orientation a bit, uh, trying to realize that it can't just depend on uh, visitors from the north. Um, how, how do you view tourism? Is, is it rebounding? And um, would you recommend that Americans go there? Or what's the, the best advice that, that both of you might give on this? Uh, let me go first with you, Andrew. I, I think uh, most places in Mexico are pretty safe. Um, one of my favorite cities where I used to live many years ago is Tijuana, Baja California. And Tijuana went from one of the most violent cities to being a, a city that's actually relatively safe and, and has now this extraordinary culinary scene and musical scene and artistic scene and literally in the space of three or four years sort of reinvented itself as a cultural mecca, which no one ever would have ever thought of Tijuana that way, but it is it's beginning to be really a cultural mecca. Um, parts of Mexico you know, most of Mexico is incredibly safe. Um, Acapulco is probably not in its best moment to acquire it it's much better than it was, but it's not not where it could be Veracruz is a little bit dangerous these days. Other than that, most of the country you know, I wouldn't probably go to rural Sinaloa tomorrow, but, but most people who don't have family there or business there probably aren't going to. 
most places you would go as a tourist are incredibly safe, and um, it's actually a good time to go to Mexico. And, you know, overall, and I think Juan may have mentioned this earlier, I mean, we've actually seen violence drop over the past 18 months in Mexico. Not enough to assure us that this is going to continue. I mean, it certainly plateaued. It looks like it's dropped in the last 18 months. You know, we have to see where this goes, if it continues to drop or not, um, or if it goes up again. But but many of the places that were most violent before, including places like Tijuana, where, where lots of people used to go, um, are actually doing much better these days. Well, what would you say on this? I guess um, I just met uh, this week with the Secretary of Tourism for the state of Guanajuato, and he was the former undersecretary for tourism for, for the nation. And um, we were discussing tourism in Mexico, and he was saying how it, the message maybe has not been a good message. Let's say the, the brand of Mexico has not been a good brand recently. Tourism is up. In, in, in billions of dollars. Uh, now, where would it be if, if Mexico did not have such a blemished brand because of the uh, of, of the of the crime and uh, especially the drug wars? Well, who knows? Uh, maybe it would be many more billions of dollars. But things are are looking very very good in Mexico. States like Guanajuato, the city of San Miguel de Allende, is expanding their little airport so that more private jets can come in for the weekend from the United States and from Japan, he was telling me, uh, hotel rooms. Uh, Mexico tends to be a, a cheaper Europe, if you will. There's all the history, there's all the culture that you can find anywhere in Europe, Mexico would say, and, and I would agree, uh, but it's just a couple of hours away from the Dallas, from the San Antonio, from uh, new flights, for example, directly from Guanajuato to Chicago, direct flights. Uh, things are really looking up with regard to tourism. Well, I have to say that when we went in June, we took a group of members from the World Affairs Councils, and some folks here said, well, aren't you worried about your security? And uh, we could not have uh, had a more pleasant visit in Guanajuato, and we saw lots of visitors from the United States, Canada, and elsewhere. Um, so... Uh, you know, everyone has to has to make their own, own decision on this, of course, but it's good to hear what both of you have, have said. You know, Pinyin Yeta, one of the main areas of his uh, platform was uh, opening up the oil industry a little bit. And, of course, you know, Mexico does have tremendous oil potential that has been uh, uh, not taken advantage of uh, and has perhaps led to some of the corruption that remains in, in, in the country. Um, do you think Pinyinito will be successful? It's not, I understand, privatizing the oil industry, but going to open it up to other investors. Is, is that is that correct? He said he will. Um, I, you know, we've seen a number of people from his transition team in different forms, and they always hold this out as one of their first and most important issues. In fact, the things that I've heard most often from them are, you know, energy reform, and fiscal reform, and they're now doing some labor reform right now, which we'll see what the result is, but that's actually in debate in Congress. Um, and they've said, uh, you know, that they expect it to come through, actually, under the Cabrera administration. The new Congress was nominated by the PRI, but actually be signed by Calderon. We'll see if that happens. I, th- I think they're very serious about this. The complexities of being energy reform in Mexico and allowing for public-private ventures, allowing for risk contracts, which allow private companies to come in and and to deep oil, uh, deep water oil exploration. It, it's in fact, there's a lot of interest in Mexico that would like that not to happen, that would like things to continue as they are. Um, and, uh, you know, they're going to have to, they want to get through what would be, have to be a constitutional amendment to make this happen. They're going to have to, to really overcome what is both an emotional issue for many Mexicans, the sense that the oil, you know, belongs to Mexico, and, and that's always been interpreted. The oil is owned by the state of Mexico as opposed to the state. They control what happens to it. They tax it, um, and they're going to have to overcome a lot of vested interests and, and to get a constitutional amendment is hard. And, and so I think they will come. They will come up against reality as they do this, and it will depend on presidential leadership. If they want to make this their number one priority, they will get it through. If they don't, if it's one of ten or twenty priorities, I think the chances of it happening go down. Now, Urban just asked this question, Andrew, and he says, why does Mexico not build more oil refineries in lieu of purchasing gasoline from the U.S.? They now would extrapolate from that. Isn't it in Mexico's self-interest to be less dependent on, uh, on foreign production? 
Very much so. Um, you know, Mexico, they're in the process of building a second refinery, which will increase their capacity. There's a diminishing return on building more, from what I've heard, and I'm not an expert on this, but everyone I know agrees on all sides that, that you know, one more is useful, but the, but otherwise the, the upfront investment is probably not worth it. Um, but Mexico, you know, the, the, the real opportunity in Mexico, I mean, one, they get that refinery up and going, but but technically, it is the deep water oil exploration. There's a lot of deep water oil that we assume is out there. Um, it's out there on the U.S. side, so it's got to be out there on the Cuban side. So we assume it's got to be out there on the Mexican side as well, just that they haven't had the technology to get there yet. Um, the other opportunity, which hasn't been tapped yet, is Mexico's going to be the fourth or fifth uh, source of shale gas, the fourth or fifth reserve of, of shale gas in the world. I mean, one of the things that could be exciting, if Mexico does something about its energy in- industries, we could be talking, you know, four or five years from now about North American energy independence. I mean, we're thinking about the United States, Canada, and Mexico. We may actually be in a situation between oil and shale gas, which we all three have, where, you know, other sources of uh, energy from the rest of the world are optional and not required. Obviously, we'll continue to import from other parts of the world. It's a, it's a global market. But, but if there's a squeeze somewhere else in the world, it turns out that we actually have a great deal of independence here at home in North America. You know, Mexico, of course, has made enormous progress, but corruption continues to be a, a, a problem. It's, it's plagued that, that, you know, that Transparency International, for instance, uh, ranked Mexico in 100th place in 2011. Um, um, is, is it largely due to the narco-trafficking, or what are some of the other issues that have... Uh, uh, made it so that Mexico continues to not be able to really turn the corner. And, of course, that's just such a key part of bringing in foreign investment and, and, and growing the middle class. Juan, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I would say that the nation of Mexico is doing much better with regard to defining corruption at the federal level. I believe he finds less and less and less. He sent the boss in a very strong manner, um, and uh, there haven't really been any um, uh, convictions, or very, very few, of, of people in the federal government. Now, as you go down to municipalities, you still find a, a lot of uh, individuals asking for the whole bribe, or, or uh, going through a red light and that kind of thing. But I would say that uh, I, I went to elementary school down in Guanajuato, and, and uh, I remember my high school buddies that they had to give these uh, 50 pesos, three, four, five tips, if you will, bribes, or they were bribes, to the uh, police official, etc., or for just about anything. That doesn't happen anymore in, in the state of Guanajuato. Um, you see very little of it in many of the states, and, uh, and I don't want to disagree with the expert of Andrew Seale, but you still do find that in the PRI, and I think we'll maybe make this conversation a little more fun, too, to have a little disagreement. In the PRI states, you do tend to see more of the corruption than you do in those states that, um, where the fund has rules. Now, the fundistas have not been perfect. And some of the corruption that had been going away during the administration, we said the box seemed to creep back in. It's not just because of, of the, the, the drug uh, trafficking. Um, it's, it's a matter of finding leaders uh, who will definitely combat corruption. Uh, but Mexico is doing much better. Well, then let's just see. You know, oh, go ahead, Juan. I don't know, Andrew. I would just say, I mean, I think there has been, I'll agree with Juan on this, I mean, I think there has been, a, a, I think one of the great failures in the past, um, you know, few years as Mexico went through a democratic process was to hold people accountable for, for corruption. Um, and it created a real sense of impunity. And part of what happened is that you've had those who were already had corrupt practices, primarily those who have been in the free governments, continue to do it, sometimes in more refined and subtle ways. And, and people from the bond and the PRD learned how to do it along the way because there was, you know, there wasn't much of a penalty for being held in corruption. That said, the one thing that gives me, I mean, this long perceived drug trafficking, in fact, to some extent drug trafficking was under, if you go back 20 years, was to some extent controlled and regulated by the state in informal ways um, back when it was a smaller business and, and was not seen as being, you know, there wasn't a lot of violence in Mexico around drug trafficking. Um, 
you know, that started to change as these groups got bigger. You know, we're sort of seen as a business in the U.S. and, you know, not much of a response to cause problem in Mexico. We kind of regulate it. Maybe a few politicians will make some money off of it, a few police officers. So, I mean, this was, you know, the, the drug trafficking has been part of this, but, but corruption has been a much bigger issue for a very long time. It's been part of, of you know, what people did in Spanish, you know, it, it, it oils the system, and there's, there's a whole vocabulary in Mexican Spanish around corruption. There's a, there's a great book put out by Transparency International, the Mexican chapter, um, called How Do We Arrange This? And it, 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 it's a common statement you say when you're stopped by a police officer. How do we fix this? I guess it's the, the correct English translation. How do we fix this? Or, you know, how do we reach the deal so you're not going to give me a ticket? And, you know, I'll part with the money going my way. I mean, this has been sort of culturally accepted in many ways and part of the political system. The thing that gives me optimism is I, is I see more and more Mexicans being intolerant with this. You know, and you, you have, uh, you know, both a petty corruption. I mean, you know, when the police officer says, you know, so how are we going to fix this? We'll turn around and say, I don't know, take me to the police station. You know, I mean, I'm willing to pay the fine, whatever. You know, give me the fine. And, you know, I, I know a number of people that do that regularly. When it comes down to, to the larger kinds of corruption, you see businesses denouncing it. Um, you see average citizens refusing to, to, to go along with this. Um you know, I, it's a long way to go because the incentives are still in the wrong place. But I think increasingly in democratic Mexico, you have citizens who are less and less tolerant of corruption, and over time that's going to change things. Well, it was striking to read what Manuel Suarez Miller, he's an economist at American University, said that organized crime and corruption reduces GDP by 1.2 percentage points. And you can see by looking at this graph that's in front of us um, what difference that might make. We've got just a few more minutes, and I want to be sure that I get to our second challenge question. Juan, especially since we're going to give the winner a copy of your book, The New American Pioneers, Why We Were Afraid of Mexican Immigrants. But uh, and, and neither one of you can answer the question. This is for our listeners. The question is, in which Mexican state is Central Fox located? Is it in Nicopan, Guanajuato, or, or, or Chihuahua? Uh, be the first person to answer that question, and you will receive a copy of Juan Hernandez's book, and we we'll probably even get it inscribed. Uh, here's a question that just came in. Mexico's GDP is the 12th in the world. However, when that is translated to GDP per capita, Mexico drops way down on the list. Why is not of the wealth of the country well distributed? And in fact, uh, Jorge Castaneda, who served as Mexico's foreign minister, well known to both of you gentlemen, he said that Mexico's greatest question is how to distribute the country's wealth. Well, there's good news and bad news on this front. Um, the good news is Mexico is actually less unequal than it used to be. Um, the uh, marginally even rural poverty has gone down a little bit, which is surprising. Um, a lot of that has to do with remittances and a social program called the Comunidades that transfers money to very poor families, and so extreme poverty has gone down a lot. Um, but there's also growing, primarily in urban areas, a growing middle class, actually. And, and, you know, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of Mexicans probably fit into a loose definition of the middle class, which means they have some assets. They, they have some ability. They own their home. They, they own a car, maybe an old car. Um, they may have some excess income that allows them to have leisure activities, like, you know, going to a, an inexpensive place out of, out of their hometown for vacation. So you, you get, you know, almost half the population is probably there. The other half of the population is not. And, and that's a huge deal. And this, this is the less optimistic side. Because the, the good news is, this is a country that's really transformed. I mean, GDP per capita in Mexico is, much higher, it's two or three times as high as China, it's five times higher than India, it's right around Brazil and Russia. Um, so, you know, it's, a, it's a, a country with something of a middle class and it's moving up. That's my idea is half the country hasn't benefited from this. And, and you know, I, I, a lot of the question here is, is the new government going to come in and try and do something ambitious to break through um, some of the perverse incentives built into government subsidies, try and do something about the energy sector to really to really energize, to excuse the pun, but to energize the Mexican economy. Um, can you see them coming and doing something about education, which, which has expanded in quantity but not in quality, um, and taking on other measures that really bring the other 50% of the population along? And that's what we're going to start seeing, I guess, beginning this December of this year. Lisa Browning. Lisa uh, is the winner of your book, Juan. She knew that uh, Central Fox is located in Guanajuato. And let me just make a pitch for Central Fox now to say that we did visit it in June, and it is a remarkable facility. 
uh, and President Fox and his wife Martha are just doing terrific work in uh, giving Mexican youth uh, an opportunity to learn about democracy as well as a, a very important think tank in, in the academic, academic center. Uh, that in it, it's my understanding that this was the only presidential library uh, located outside of outside of the United States. Let me. Well, we only have a few minutes left, and let me ask you first, Andrew, um, and 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 Juan. I'm going to ask you when, on this question to take off your somewhat partisan hat. Um, but to uh, what what differences do each of you discern that might uh, develop? Uh, between Obama or Romney administration on this on the important subject of, of immigration and our relations with Mexico. Andrew, why don't you go first? Well, you know, I think um, it depends a lot on how politicians read the results of these elections. I think that's the first uh, caution here. I mean, if politicians think that the Latino vote was important, you know, there's some signs that Latino voters actually do care about immigration policy. It, it, it's it didn't used to be true. Um, it used to be that Latino voters, uh, you know, who were citizens and, and mostly second and third generation, um, did not care about it. But but in recent years, there, you know, it was, a, it was more important than it was for other voters in the U.S. But it wasn't that big a deal. That's changed in the past few years. I mean, there's a sense that, that Latinos, among many Latinos, that that uh, the immigration debate has really been an anti-Latino debate and it's become much more of an emotional issue. And so I think the first thing is these politicians think the Latino vote mattered in this election. If they do, they're going to be more sensitive to doing something. Two, I think it depends on can the next president be pragmatic on this issue. I mean, as much as I think Juan and I are probably on the same page on this, I mean, you know, comprehensive immigration reform is probably the right way to go. But on the other hand, I think in reality, you know, you have to figure out with the Congress you have what's doable. I mean, can you get a Green Act through? Can you get in you know, some version? Can you get a? Can you begin looking at a? You know, maybe bits and pieces of the larger immigration puzzle and begin to chop off blocks of it to get you to larger and larger reforms. I don't think we're going to see with either president one big immigration reform. As much as I, I wish we would, I'm not sure it's there. I think it depends on which of the two presidents can choose to be pragmatic on this issue. Uh, I, I tend to agree with, with Andrew because in, I think that both, whoever wins, um, would it be the Republican with Romney or would it be Obama Democrats, both of them will try to tackle this problem um, and this opportunity, by the way, because uh, I tend to believe that these 11 million individuals in the nation are, are a great blessing to our nation. Um, and we can't continue to speak, uh, have this double speak. On the one hand, we don't want, in quotation marks, illegals here, people who've broken the laws, etc. On the other hand, we want to continue employing them because we do need them. And as we see when there are great disasters, like we just had recently, um, with the, the super storm, we have so many of the immigrants being the ones out there doing the, the repair. We saw it also with Katrina, etc. Now, uh, I think that if Romney wins, I think that he may be very practical and look at the economics of this and will be a little bit of a, if you will, a Nixon going to China, kind of a surprise, kind of a uh, uh, someone who can deal with it in a different way without all of this passion that I, by the way, usually have with regard to immigration and wanting to to bring out of the dark these good people, I think that he may be more practical. On the other hand, I believe that Obama um, owes it to the Hispanic community. He promised it uh, last time he was uh, on, on his campaign, so in the first year, he said on the vision that he would pass, those were his words, an immigration reform. And most Hispanics are disappointed that he did not push it. And he was called by Hispanics the first Latino president because Latinos at least felt that they had been the, had given the tipping point, if you will, so that uh, Obama became president. So I believe that both of them will tackle uh, this issue. And I, I may even be a little bit more optimistic than Andrew, and, and uh, I think that it may be that it's time for us to do a, not just a little piecemeal, but a, a large immigration reform. Um, and then just one last on that, working with Peña Nieto, working with Peña Nieto so that it be, Andrew, I think you'd agree, 
more of a immigration agreement between the two countries, not just an immigration reform. There are things that Mexico can do to bring opportunities to the sending regions, to work at the border. I'm not talking about narco, I'm not talking about security, I'm talking about immigration uh, and the undocumented that come to our nation seeking to better their lives and to support us uh, and uh, giving us the, the uh, supplying those jobs that we, that we need to supply. And, and I'm on, and I'd like to be the last word, and, and I just want to say how much I appreciate both of you being with us today on Global IQ with Jim Talk. I wish we had more time. Thank you all for your for your questions. Uh, we'll be watching with keen interest what happens here in the United States on Tuesday, and of course following the, the transition. Maybe we can check in with, with both of you, uh, perhaps uh, late spring after the first hundred days of the of the new Pinto administration. I uh, want to remind everyone to visit dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ to sign up for the latest updates and information on our program. And be sure to mark your calendars uh, for December 11th at 10 a.m. Central for one of the programs that is, is really one of our most intriguing and enjoyable. It's with the executive editor of The Economist, Daniel Franklin. And uh, we'll be looking at the world in 2013. What did The Economist authors and editors get right in 2012? What did they miss, and what are they predicting for 2013? Also on December 11th, let me remind listeners who are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that Ted Carpenter of the Cato Institute will be speaking on the fire next door, drug violence, and other challenges facing Mexico's new president. Um, and you can just go to our website at dfwworld.org to register for that. And as always, Please do take a look at the website for the World Affairs Council of America. That's worldaffairscouncils.org. I'm sure you'll find a World Affairs Council near you. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank, SB International, Alcatel Lucent, and Inavo Global, LLC. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.